Our scripture reading for today is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And if you'd like to follow along, it is in your NIV on page number three. I'll give you just a couple seconds if you want to turn to that. So if you want to follow along, you can. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to the temple by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the high city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. We've started a series titled, There's Another Way, uh, which is going to take us through the season of Lent. And on Ash Wednesday, if you caught our online uh, service, uh, we talked about there's another way to be religious, that we often use that term as a negative thing, like, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But we need, we need both things. And we talked about that you need your heart to be truly involved, but we also need to be able to pray, to worship, to confess that there are things that the Bible and that God calls us to that it is important for us to actually do and act. So there's another way to be religious. And today we're going to talk about there's another way to read the Bible. But first we need some context of what's going on in the story and where do we walk uh, with Jesus in this text. Now this text is a classic opening to the season of Lent, that first Sunday after Ash Wednesday. Uh, to have Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights is meant to make you understand what it's like to go in the season of Lent towards the cross. And you might wonder, why do we have this number 40 associated? Now, Lent technically lasts 40 days. You might pull out your phone's calendar and you might count and you'd be really confused. How exactly is it 40 days? Uh, and there's actually a few answers depending on which tradition, but the main tradition that most everyone follows is that it's 40 days from Ash Wednesday to the Saturday of Holy Week, so right before Easter Sunday. And it's 40 days if you do not count Sundays. And so that's why there's the tradition of fasting, and on Sunday, it's not a fast. Of You, you can break that fast. It's a celebration day. It's a, it's a resurrection day again. And so the 40 days is, is technically Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday with some Sundays all taken off. Uh, but we are supposed to be on a journey like Jesus in the wilderness of spending 40 days uh, contemplating what God's call is for us and whether we can go through with God's mission. And this temptation scene is a story we get in 
um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, it's very, very, very short Mark. It's just he went out into the wilderness, there's some weird animals or beasts out there, and the angels minister to Jesus, and he goes on. Um, but Matthew and Luke have this story that most of us know about the temptation, though they change the ordering, so which temptation happens first, second, or third is a little bit different depending on each um, Matthew and Luke, but, and I think for a purpose, but there's one temptation which you can understand if you're fasting, use your power, turn these stones into bread, and if you've ever been really, really hungry, you've known the feeling of wishing you could turn something into food. I don't want to wait. I can't. I just need something to eat right now. Whatever's around me, I don't care if I normally eat this or like this. I'm hungry. So there's the temptation for turning stones into bread. There's also a temptation to rule the world by submitting to the devil in the story. If you bow down to me, I will give you all these things. And then there's the temptation that we're going to focus on today, which is the temptation to test God's protection for yourself. Hey, if you throw yourself off, the angels are going to protect you. Why? Well, the devil's going to quote some scripture in the text. It says in Matthew 4, Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the son of God, you will throw yourself down, for it is written. So here's the devil quoting scripture in the story. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus replies and says, well, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, it might seem small and trivial, but it's worth us thinking about and reflecting on the fact that you can use Scripture to to promote a position that is anti what God wants to do, and what God is about, and what God's mission is. And so the devil can quote scripture and not mess the scripture up. He doesn't say the wrong words here or there, but here's the scripture text. Go for it. But that doesn't mean that it's God's will or God's direction for your life. And that's actually quite a powerful thing to have to realize because we like to throw Bible verses around, just however we want to use them. Uh, And here is that reminder that if the devil can quote scriptures in the wrong way, surely it's imagining that we can quote scriptures in the wrong way and use it for the wrong purposes. And so I, I was thinking about this text and I was remembering uh, a moment in my life that was a very kind of stressful little bit of a moment. Uh, I was an undergrad and about to graduate and the seminary that I would eventually attend did a scholarship weekend. And so they invited prospective students to come spend the weekend, learn from the faculty, do some interviews, get to know um, what the place is like, and then the school would decide who would get certain kind of tiers of scholarships. So that's a lot of pressure. And it's like it's a never-ending interview all weekend. And I remember being really stressed out at first because I saw that my interviewer, uh, I I have no idea how to say this last name. And so uh, I I love her, Dr. Nancy DeClasse-Walford, Uh, how on earth do I say that? How am I going to mess this interview up even before it starts? And so you get there and you're meeting everybody and they ask these questions like, hey, what's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the world? And this one prospective student is like, you know what? I just wish if everybody would get back to the Bible, we'd all have this figured out. 
which is actually a pretty common idea. People like to say that. If we just got back to the Bible, everything would be okay. But a lot of our disagreement is actually over the Bible. And it's unfair when we kind of talk about other traditions and, and like, well, they just don't read the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. When they also find God's word incredibly meaningful, life-giving, they're trying their best to interpret, but we disagree about the Bible. And so we sometimes feel like, oh, if I just had the Bible, every problem would go away, but we can use the Bible for good or for evil, and you've seen people use it for hateful things and for good things. And so I, I remember just feeling like, man, that just feels so naive. Like, the Bible uh, alone by itself could be used for good and for evil. And so we have used the Bible for a lot of good things, but also a lot of bad things. Historically, um, there's especially certain kinds of texts that have been used for, for all sorts of evil. Uh, the Romans 13 Hey, the kings that are in place, God put them there. So you should just you know, do what you're told. Do the taxes, like listen to authorities. Well, that's great when your authorities are trying to live justly and are doing a fairly good job of it. But when you live under evil regimes who are, are you know, if you live in Nazi Germany during World War II, what is it to have Romans 13 thrown at you that you should just obey your authorities? Well, that text has been used in a lot of ugly ways. There's a lot of people who have been um, pushed down because they're like, well, they're in power, let them be in power. Now, I actually love a part of Baptist history. The two main founders of the very first Baptist church, which they were British folks who happened to be in Amsterdam trying to find a place to have some freedom to, to worship in the way that they wanted. But Thomas Helwes uh, wrote a a document and wrote a text to the king and he wrote this text about hey everybody deserves religious freedom I'm not talking about you know Anglicans I'm not talking about my group but anybody and everybody we all deserve freedom and you know what he got for it he got imprisonment and that tradition carried on and for many early Baptists they talked about I don't care if you are of another faith I don't care if you don't believe in God at all Everybody deserves dignity and to be uh, um, free. But it's hard, and you can imagine the fights when they say, hey, this is the authority and the power over you. You have to listen to them. Um, that's who God wants to rule. I think worse or harder than just that, though it's in the same vein, is the way that the Bible was used to promote slavery or maintain slavery for so many, many, many years. And so people would quote little snippets of Paul, you know, the parts like in Ephesians 6, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling uh, as you would obey Christ, not only while being watched in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You can imagine how a slave owner would be like, I love this passage. And there's actually some interesting historical artifacts that remain that help us see the ugliness and the terribleness of the way that people have used these things. There's a text called the Slave Bible, which in the early 1800s uh, was used uh, to try to help make sure that slaves saw themselves as slaves and would not try to be free, would not try to overturn the system. 
And so it was actually called, um, more fully, Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for the Use of Slaves in the British West India Islands. Now this Bible was missing some things and it had some things and so it had Joseph being sold into slavery but it didn't have Moses leading people out of Egypt. It's a big thing to miss. You know, and, and it had Paul's call to, hey, remain as a slave, but it didn't have Paul's thing that, hey, if you are in Christ, there is no longer slave or free. And so it picked and chose which verses to show you in order to stay in power over you. And I think even though these are kind of like bigger, painful, glaring examples, people still pick and choose what verses they want to use to push down other people all of the time. I know that there's many people um, who have been in abusive marriages who have had verses quoted at them, who have been harmed, who, who are scared for their life, and yet even from their ministers, from their families, from all sorts of people have been told, well, you know what, God doesn't like divorce, therefore just stay through this uh, even when your life is at risk. And I know I, I did a wedding for a couple who their pastor, they have a policy, I don't marry anyone who's previously had a marriage for any reason whatsoever. And so they used some texts in a way that is uh, very painful for people. I know that I have a friend who, who talked about he, he and his family had people quoting scriptures at him because he had had a marriage that ended in divorce. Um, we don't talk about the fact that sometimes men are abused, uh, but he had been in an abusive relationship. And his family quoted scripture and I was saying, hey, you can't be a minister and have had a divorce. And so they'd quote some texts about that. And I know it's not just about kind of marriage relationships. I know that especially probably if you're a woman in the room, you're more likely to have had text quoted at you whether it's about the way you dress or what you do or whatever. And so I know I have so many lady friends who talk about their calls to ministry, who have been, um, felt God call them to spread God's word, to, to serve in churches. And one of them was telling the story on Facebook. She was explaining that she had just kind of discerned this call and she was excited. She met some, this guy that she had gone to camp with and they met up to talk about some things and they show up to, to, to eat and to catch up and suddenly the guy's got a Bible out and telling her all the reasons she isn't supposed to do what God has called her to do. And she talked about she was just in shock, and in that moment she just got up and left. But the reality is, is for some of us, the Bible is such a cherished, life-giving, beautiful document, and for others, we've been abused by it. And so we need to be aware of the fact that there have been people who have acted like the devil, who have used scripture as a temptation to do something that is contrary to what God wants them to do in this world. And it's been painful. And we could make a list of the kinds of things that this has been done around. Um, there's plenty of topics that this happens. But we live in a world that likes to use texts, likes to use our Bible to maintain power, to push others down, to oppress people. Like that's the natural inclination that has happened for centuries. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens in our own moment or when we feel it as a temptation in our own lives. Because we live in a tribal world. 
We live in a world where people want to gather as a little small community and be against another community and fight for power and for honor and, and, and push each other down. And as we bring that, that tribalism into the world, we bring our sacred text into that messiness. We like to call the Bible holy, but we don't like to read it wholly for the whole of creation. We like the Bible holy, but we don't like to read it holy. The Bible is only God's word when it is read holistically, joining with God and seeking life-giving harmony for all of God's creatures, all of God's people, all of God's creation. You can use the words of God in a way that no longer makes them the words of God. The voice changes. When we use the Bible to puff up our own selves, our own positions, our own identity, in order to push others down, we've traded God's word for our word. And so I think while historians like to call that Bible in the 1800s the slave Bible, because of who, who it was given to and who read it, the slave Bible was actually the slave owner's Bible. It was the perspective and the vision of people who wanted to oppress somebody else. And when I think about some of those friends I have, um, particularly women who felt God's call in their life and people came and they read texts at them, um, those people weren't reading God's Bible anymore. They were reading man's Bible. And that's the temptation that we are all brought into is to use the Bible to puff up our own platform and to shove others down further beneath us. And so when we think back about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, hey, Jesus, use your power to feed yourself. Hey, Jesus, use your power to call on divine protection. Hey, you know, if you submit to me and not to God, I'll give you all power. And that temptation is real for us, the temptation for power over other people. And so God's power is not meant for selfish ambition or pursuits. It's not that food is bad, right? Like turning stone and stones into bread, like, hey, food's good. But it's the temptation to take advantage of one's power just to benefit yourself and not for benefiting others. When you think about Jesus would later go on and in that story of multiplication of bread and fish, like, oh no, you used your power to feed people. Well, yeah, to feed everybody. It's not just about yourself. And so God's power and God's wisdom is meant for connecting and bringing us together instead of uh, fracturing creation even more. It's about life-giving harmony. And I think it's helpful to remember that the kinds of words that are used in the text matter. Uh, if you think about the book of Job, when Job gets tempted, it uses the word Satan, the accuser. It's like a prosecuting attorney in the story saying, God, are you sure this person's righteous? And in this story, it's the word that gets into English as devil. It's a word that means slanderer. It's a liar. It's, it's someone who attacks the reputation of others. And so it's someone who can't be trusted. And in this instance, the lies and this distrust also includes the use of the Bible. And so this devil figure in the story uses scripture, quotes Psalm 91. But that psalm actually wasn't about just the Messiah. It wasn't a messianic prophecy. It was just, it was, it was a declaration to all people, actually. 
in which the devil turns it to one person of, hey, don't you want this? And so the real psalm says, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, whoever who lives in that shelter, he who lives in that shelter, she who lives in that shelter, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And that invitation for protection and for refuge is for everybody. And we miss it when we make it just for ourselves. And we close those boundaries in and we don't make it for our neighbor or for our enemies. And so I'm reminded of another story, which if you were reading along in our daily uh, Lent devotion guide, uh, you'll read that the daily lectionary this last week had a couple of readings from the book of Jonah, which when you think about Lent and the call for repentance, Jonah makes sense as a text to read. But Jonah, it's the, those chapters in which he finally says, okay, fine, I'll go preach to my enemies in Nineveh. And he shows up in Nineveh and he preaches the shortest sermon ever. He says, judgment is coming. And then he leaves and he waits because he wants to see judgment on his enemies. And God gives him shade and takes the shade away and Jonah gets really mad and he cares about that more than the people of the city. And so Jonah has closed those boundaries and he doesn't want God's loving harmony to actually even extend out to those that he can't even imagine loving. And we do the same thing. We don't wanna always extend that, that love to whoever we've got a little dispute with, whoever we felt wronged by or, or, or rejected by. And, and I wanna note that while we're talking about rejection and pain, um, just because the Bible is meant for life-giving, harmonious uh, movement, that doesn't mean that the Bible also doesn't speak uh, correction. You know, that the abuser, the slave owner, the person who needs to hear that. It's not judgment, though, just to bring fire down on the city like Jonah wanted. It's the call for judgment to have repentance so people might turn to God and see God's goodness and love and that they might walk together in a new way. And so, uh, whoever seeks refuge with God, all who seek refuge with God, are invited on another path. There's another way to live in the world that's not tribal. There's another way to read the Bible that doesn't use it to dominate and to oppress others. We can continue um, to do that, but we're gonna get the same results. We can continue to use it in our tribal ways but we're gonna to continue to fracture ourselves. But God invites us to, to read in a way that understands that God's scope and who God talks to is always bigger and always wider of a net than we think. And so the path to the cross and the path to Easter begins with a fractured tribal world. And we'll see that in the story as we move along. But it requires us to repent of our tribalism to get out of our own little boundaries and to realize that to follow Jesus to the cross is to follow and be along with a community that is much more wider than we expect because Jesus' arms were much more wider than we expected. And so I hope that we might stop hiding our dislike for other people, our hates. Let's stop hiding that in our Bible verses. Let's stop just trying to quote a text at somebody just to give authority to our, our anger, our frustrations, our, our dislikes. But let's choose today to embrace the wholeness of God, 
and the wholeness of God's mission and word for all people. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I know that there are some in this room who have heard Scripture used um, in painful ways in their life. And Lord, I just want to acknowledge that for those who have felt that pain and yet still choose uh, to, to discern your voice in the midst of these words, in the midst of this Bible, uh, we appreciate that your work in them is, more, is stronger than the work of those who use it for hate. Lord, we ask that we, we might use your vision uh, to use your scriptures um, to bring life to this world and a world that wants to uh, cause harm to each other. Lord, let us use your words to restore and renew things that are broken. Let us heal fractured families and communities. Lord, help us to have your vision uh, to use your text um, the way that you, you have, a, have intended and the way that you wish. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.